Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Films about the difference between Marvel and DC movies, and this week's show has just a touch of listener participation. Junkies are a Canadian alternative country blues and folk band. The group was formed in Toronto in 1985 by Margot Timmins. Here is a cover of the Velvet Underground Sweet Jane, which was recommended to me by Alison, who's Nozilla underscore 63 on Twitter. Should I describe you? I think I should just call you a YouTube phenomena. What do you reckon? That's very flattering. And um, it's not what I would say myself. I would probably just say a filmmaker who happens to frequently make videos on YouTube. Most down-to-earth <laughs> way of putting it. No, you're not exactly selling yourself well. Now, yesterday, you helped me settle a quite impassioned and quite important argument. Obviously, the last, what, 10 plus years, there's been a phenomenon in the world of movies. It's called the Marvel Studio. And many people think that there is a big beef between uh, the Marvel heroes and, and the DC ones. Uh, definitely in, in the cinematic world, in terms of the Marvel, Marvel movies just seem to be better. 
Now, you're somewhat of, a, of an academic about these things. And, you know, you've graduated from, from college doing cinema studies. You've got your 200 videos on YouTube. I'm right, aren't I? Marvel is just better than DC. Yeah, I mean, when you get to the movies, and you've, I think you've really got to... Because there have been previous films, you know, going way back based on Marvel Comics and previous films based on DC Comics going way back. But uh, but if you want to compare them, you really, I think, have to cut it. So Marvel starts in 2008 mm-hmm. with Iron Man and then DC starts in 2013 with Man of Steel. And in that respect, I do think Marvel is – I mean the, the films are just of a higher quality than DC's are. All right, so for people that aren't really aware, think, well, they're wearing capes, they're wearing tight clothes, they're biffing people, it's all the same. Explain the difference. Why are the Marvel Studio films better in your in your view? You have to give credit to the fact that Marvel was doing it first. When they started with, with Iron Man in 2008, they had a clear plan going forward of, okay, we're going to establish these separate characters and hopefully we do our work and these movies are successful and then we can bring them all together into one movie and we'll have this cohesive universe and they did that and the the plan worked flawlessly and with dc it was a little bit trickier because when they started their cinematic universe the christopher nolan batman trilogy was still going on iron man came out the same year as the dark knight Warner Brothers was very much letting Nolan do his thing and not getting in his way, and that was never going to turn into a cinematic universe. That was never going to have spin-offs. It was just its self-contained little trilogy. And so by the time that ended in 2012, and they really needed to catch up, and so all of a sudden, you know, Marvel is many movies ahead, and DC... I should say Warner Brothers because it's not DC Comics who's making these decisions. They're put in this tight spot where they have all these characters that they have the rights to, and the pressure is on them to create the cinematic universe and match Marvel's success, but uh, but they didn't have a clear plan, and they're already way behind. If you really want to boil down their core problem, they just didn't plan it and rushed into it without a vision. I would say, though, and I must admit, I'm, I'm a Marvel fanboy. Um, okay. 50% of the listeners can discount what I'm about to say, but it is fact. I think there's a deeper problem in that... Really? I actually think that the Marvel characters are actually much more interesting than the ones from DC. I think there's an inherent problem, and that in of itself is definitely one of them. Discuss. I'm I'm going to disagree with you on that, actually. Hey, uh, as hey, much hey, as I am... hey, 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 hey. Let, let, let me rephrase I... this. Let me rephrase this. Yes. Right? Okay, Superman. One-dimensional character in terms of him being behind the mask, so to speak. And that's really what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. I'm not talking about their power sets. I'm saying that Diana Troy, gobbledygook backstory. Uh, Clark Kent, one-dimensional... It's a great backstory. It makes no earthly sense, pun intended. Right, Clark Kent, (sighs) terrible archetype for the alter ego of a superhero he was the first but basically he's just a straight up and down guy and then you have all these marvel heroes that come along in the early 1960s and stanley writes them all with at least one kind of personality flaw so peter parker classically can't get a girlfriend iron man doesn't start off as being an alcoholic but you know he becomes an alcoholic but by the by the 1970s etc 
Steve Rogers, a man out of time. They all have these, you know, these little personality quirks. Whereas the original Hal Jordan was just, I'm a fighter pilot. That's just what I do. The original Bruce Wayne, I'm just a multimillionaire, etc. Barry Barry Allen, I'm just a scientist, etc., etc. And I think that is the, the fundamental flaw with, with DC's movies. Go. Are we trying to separate the comic books from the movies? Because if you look at the the recent DC movies, I mean, I made a whole 12 minute long video about it. I will be the first to tell you that those characters are not interesting there. But as a, a person who reads a hell of a lot of comic books, I think that the explanation you gave right there about the Marvel ones being inherently more interesting, I think that works if you only base it on their original versions. Uh, in which case you have to take into account the time and the, and what comics were, were like at, at the time. But since then, I mean, these characters have been written consistently for some of them more than 75 years. Each one of these characters has been made so compelling that I don't think it, that really holds up. I can name plenty of great Hal Jordan stories. As a kid who grew up very into Batman, mm -hmm. I was originally in the Batman is way better than Superman camp. And as I've gotten older, uh, like through my 20s, I've really gotten more into Superman. No and uh, I mean, you're not, just a I, contrarian, I say, Patrick. You're just a contrarian. Nobody... I just, I love all, Go on. I love all these characters. That That's totally it. I, I love all the characters. And when it comes to the movies, I just want them all to be as good as they can be. And that's why the DC movies frustrate me, because I know these characters should be great. I love the characters, I really care about them, and they're just letting me down. Now, we're gonna have to pause here. I'm, I'm taking breath, because I can't believe some of the things you, you're saying here. But uh, <laughs> we're gonna take breath, and uh, neatly segue onto music, because I always ask my guests on the show, regardless of whether I agree with them or not, and I'm really not agreeing with you at all, to nominate a piece of music. Now, you've uh, gone for something quite unusual. Is this a piece of uh, music from uh, an arcade game? No, it's, it's from, it's from uh, a movie. Ah, all right. So much for me and my research. So it's Nowhere Fast by Fire from the Streets of Fire soundtrack. I should have uh, actually read what was written in front of me. Tell me why you've nominated this piece of music. I'm a big fan of the movie Streets of Fire, which, if you're not aware of it, was a, a Walter Hill film from the mid-80s. This was a movie that Walter Hill made after he'd made big hits like The Warriors and 48 Hours. It's a kind of fantastical, musical action movie. It's got a young Willem Dafoe, it's got Rick Moranis, a really young Diane Lane. Did not do well financially. I basically, I guess you would, you could say it's a cult film, but uh, I discovered it a couple years ago and it has this fantastic soundtrack and uh, that I really think deserves to get more love than it does. And uh, one of my personal filmmaking goals is to, to use a song from it in a movie someday. It's something more people should check out.
I'm not sure if that piece of music really, really moved me. And it definitely felt like somewhat of a period piece. And also, it sounded quite a lot like meatloaf to me. Um, you know why? Why? Do you know why it sounds like Meatloaf? Because the songs are written by Jim Steinman, who wrote all of Meatloaf's songs. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so we- that's exactly why. It's by the same guy. Uh, all right. Well, please tell me um, why, kind of musically, te- texture-wise, uh, this is such, such a great soundtrack. Because I, I listened to that, and I was just transported back to 1984, but not in a good way. That makes a lot of sense, and um, <laughs> and I will say, as a person who I was born in the late '80s, mm-hmm. and so I didn't live through that period. So for me, it's that sort of like secondhand nostalgia thing where mm-hmm. I watch movies from that era, and uh, and I get a kick out of them, and then I think like, oh wow, I wish I was like, you know, could have seen that when it came out, and um, and so there's this, there's almost like a novelty quality to it. But um, I do, I like, I do, I just like that sound. I like that. I mean, what what I like about the songs in this movie is they are these, you know, these big, grandiose sort of pop rock songs. And, um, you know, with that, like, just build and have these massive soaring choruses. And uh, it, it's obviously, you know, music can be is so subjective. This is not the kind of music that I, I always, I, that I'm usually really into. But in certain cases, like the soundtrack to Streets of Fire in particular and uh, and I wish there was, were more movies that had soundtracks like that well it has to be said that movie soundtracks are all kind of sounding somewhat the same now in terms of they're kind of borrowing kind of classic bits of half forgotten pop music aren't they so if you look at like Guardians of the Galaxy it's definitely set off a trend which is kind of being followed by Suicide Squad but not as Oof, not, the, not as, not the, as the worst soundtrack I've yeah, in years. Exactly, but not half as clever as the Guardians of the Galaxy one. And then you have almost like a painting by numbers in terms of we need to set a mood, we need to set a theme within this film. This means suspense, this means peril, this means danger, etc. As opposed to having composers. And let's take Hans Zimmer to, to one side completely. As opposed to getting composers actually writing individual scores can be um, incredibly kind of like whimsical or kind of thematic. So I'm, I'm kind of with you there, though. You're going to have to convince me, maybe off mic, that I need to listen to the rest of the soundtrack from The Streets of Fire. Um, going I back... would really just say watch the movie. I th- I, I, okay. I think that if you want to hear it, just watch the movie. Okay. All right. Ready for download. I'll come back to you in a couple of days and let you know how I got on. Sounds good. Right. So one of the things that I found incredibly compelling about uh, your work on YouTube was your discourse on kind of character arcs. To tell any story cinematically, you need a three-part act, don't you? And you quite compellingly said that, you know, the last Superman movie, there wasn't a three-part act. He starts off being this kind of brooding, godlike figure and he ends up being a brooding godlike figure why is it do you think that the writers people plotting these dc movies have just got it so spectacularly wrong considering they have such great material to work from i think in this case it was a result of them wanting to do something different 
So, okay, so we're talking about Man of Steel, which came out mm-hmm. in 2013. That was, you know, reintroducing Superman to a new generation. But also at that point, there had been so many superhero origin movies that people were very familiar with. It was a case of the filmmakers feeling like they had to do the origin or like wanting to tell that story, but not wanting to do a traditional origin story. And so if you look at the way the movie is set up, where most of the first half is these long flashbacks, Clark Kent... Uh, growing up, which in a really odd decision, they're all out of order. It's a really odd choice, but by trying to, I guess, subvert the the classic origin story, I think they ended up and like you know, trying to do things a little bit different and you know alter aspects of Superman's origin story. I think they ended up making some really bad storytelling decisions. The first time you see him in the movie. He's saving all these people from a burning oil rig. And that's basically what he's doing at the end of the movie. Just at that point, he's shaved his beard and he's wearing a costume. But this is supposed to be the story about how he becomes a hero. They're cutting themselves off the knees if they're just going to start the movie with him already being a hero. Here's a question for you. How how can Superman actually shave his beard on planet Earth? What is it going to be... um, well, traditionally in the comics, uh, when he shaves, he uses his heat vision and reflects it off a mirror back at his face and <laughs> burns it off with that. That's how it's always been since, I think, maybe uh, the 60s or 70s. You know what? I, the prosecution rests on the fact that Marvel characters are so much better than DC. If that's a convoluted way of which Superman has to go to, to cut off his beard, I don't need to say anything more. I, I think I think you're depriving yourself of some of some great story, uh, stories there. No, no, no. You know what? I, I think you know as as we kind of said off mic. This is a conversation which I have with people incessantly at, at, at dinner parties. I do believe that inherently that the Marvel characters are more relatable. And you and I know as kind of students of the whole genre that this kind of the historical reasons for it. And I accept what you said at the start, which is that the DC characters have evolved, but they still, for me, start off from a place where they're kind of godlike, whereas the Marvel characters on a whole aren't godlike and just are a little bit more human. Two comic book stables have kind of maybe kind of somewhat converged. And for me, the issue is that Superman is actually too powerful as a hero. So he's forever saving people from natural disasters as opposed to kind of going off after baddies, so, so to speak. But can I can I can go. I jump in there because that's that's an argument that I've been hearing since I was a kid. I don't think that actually holds water at all because why, why is Batman I mean, so popular then? First of all, Batman visually is the best-looking comic book character of all time. He looks amazing. Um, and also Batman has the sort of childish wish fulfillment aspect to Batman because he's the rich guy who can do everything and he just trains so hard that he's great at everything and um, so he like makes himself so cool there have actually been studies which I find really interesting Mm -hmm. into communities about uh, exploring like which character is people kids like more Superman or Batman in dangerous areas or areas where children have a great or just like live in more danger and uh, stand a greater chance of po- or know people who've died and or been killed. Superman tends to be more popular because they they gravitate toward the idea of a man who is impervious to bullets and who can't die. While with more sheltered, often suburban kids, um, they gravitate toward Batman because 
the appeal of a man who's who has money and can do whatever he wants and beat everybody. This has very little to do with how the characters actually work as uh, storytelling devices, but I do mm-hmm. find it interesting. Well, we're going to have to start to wrap this up. And as much, of as, as, much as I am a Marvel fanboy, I am going to be the first person to admit that uh, Luke Cage, the Netflix series, I actually thought was the worst uh, Marvel offering I've actually seen. Though it started off from a very strong and provocative premise that, of course, here is a black man that can't be shot. And, of course. And in the modern climate, you know, that is just so prescient and so powerful. As much as I am a Marvel fanboy, I'm not an apologist for everything that kind of comes out of that stable. Silly, trite and obvious question. You've got to have one superpower. What's it going to be? I should have been ready for this, but uh, but I'm not. I, I feel like I'm just going to go for a really, really unoriginal one, but uh, it would be great to fly. That, w- that would really be the oh, most satisfying. Oh, let me down. What can you do with that, though, ultimately? You know, like the angel in the um, X-Men is one of the just the most forgettable of all characters. It can fly, so what? Yeah, well, the thing is, I have no interest in fighting crime <laughs> or, uh, or putting myself in danger. I, what would I do with super strength? You know, just the pure joy of flying under your own free will would be would be the greatest thrill. Also, there, there's less of a risk of possibly hurting people and are messing up and like destroying things with that one. Like heat vision would be a problem. Going Underground is the first British number one chart single by The Jam, released in March 1980. It went straight in at number one, and Paul Weller has been an icon ever since.
Walter Wall is a young Saskatchewan-born songwriter and performing musician. Steeped in old-timey material and traditional Americana, Sleeping on the Backtop is found on the album Imaginary Appalachia. Features their tried and tested dancehall style with more than just a touch of party bounce. simply typing in Friday 15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me, where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15. As I said at the start of the show, the winner of that this week was Alison, Nozilla underscore 63. iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast 
podcast, please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me where I'm Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation. 